Welcome to the Picky Girl Travels podcast, the show for Black women who want more out of life and to live it as they see fit. The message here is all about defying convention, embracing adventure, and regretting absolutely nothing. I'm your host, Adelia Borashade of the blog PickyGirlTravelsTheWorld.com. This week, um, this episode, I'm not exactly sure where it's going to go, and that's fine, um, because I have wanted to speak to my guest this week for quite a while because her life is very interesting. We share some very similar interests, and I just kept saying, I need to talk to her. I need to talk to her, okay? Um, I am always looking for Black women to showcase on this podcast who are out there living life on their terms, and that is what strikes me about my guest today, Sydney Robertson. Um, how, I'm gonna ask you, uh, how would you say that you're doing that? Or would you agree with me that you're out here living life on your terms? Listen, that is a daily choice and I actively choose it daily. <laughs> so I know that, um, it can be very easy to fall into others' plan for your life. And once you realize that your life is your responsibility, or once I'll speak personally, once I realize that my life really is my responsibility, I literally have to actively wake up each day and say, okay, Sydney, what is it that you want to do? Because it's super simple to be like, well, my mom wants me to do this, and my dad wants me to do this, and my teachers and whoever, my friends have this expectation but living life on my terms is a daily choice. Um, it's kind of like picking up your cross every day. Like this is my cross that I have to choose <laughs> every day so I don't get misaligned, become misaligned. So I would say, yes, it's a decision every morning to live life on my terms. And um, when did you embrace that? Because that that's kind of been a reoccurring theme on the podcast. For me, it took a really long time. It was, I was almost 40. By the time I was just like, no, I'm I'm going to live the life that I want. Mm. I think I've been practicing it, honestly, since I was about six. Wow. Um, so just wow. little bits of me have been very, so I'll say self-centered, but not in a selfish way. Like I, I think of myself first naturally. I know that's something that women usually have to learn how to do. I don't really have that. I'm like, wait, is that my idea or is that your idea? Because if it wasn't my idea, then maybe I need to go a different direction. <laughs> but little by little, I would say it really hit home when I started the PhD program um, at the University of Missouri. And I realized the scope of how much I really can plan my life exactly how I want it to be around 28. And again, it's I'm still getting there to where I am actualizing it every single day. But now that my mind has been open, I'm like, okay, I know for a fact that I am responsible for how I conduct my life. And if I'm clear about what I want and actively pursue it daily, it can't, it can't help but happen. Like that's just how life and faith works. Like you just got to put one step in front of the other and let it allow it to come to you as you're going to it. So I would say around 28 is when I officially made the decision, but way before that, I already kind of had that inclination to go that way anyway. I just had a push around 28. Okay. I'm hoping I don't forget this. There's two questions here. Let me ask the one that I'm likely to forget first. Okay. You said something just then about like, once you like, it really sank in that like, oh my gosh, I can plan the life I want and how that kind of just opened up things for you. I often think about that, that it's like, once you take that first step, once you embrace the idea that this is my life and living it the way other people are telling me, like that's not serving me. And it's kind of like the sky's the limit now. Yes. And there are all of these possibilities, probably things you had never considered before, I would say. Absolutely. Um, especially, you know, if you can have a dream, but don't know how to get, don't know how to get to the end of the dream to actually actualize it in your life. And when we talk about travel, my mom, my sister, and I, I want to say it was maybe 2016. We were, it was a new year and we were all sitting around the dinner table and saying, well, what is it that you actually want in your life? Like if you could think of something completely astronomical, what is it that you want? And I just said, well, I want to spend a year in Latin America. Like <laughs> I want to do this. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. It was just a dream. It was just words putting into the atmosphere. 
And I truly wanted it though, because when I described my ideal life, it was waking up in a country where I was speaking Spanish every day because that was a goal to be bilingual. Um, I wrote it down in my journal and my, you know, your vision journal, I guess I would say, I want to be bilingual by 25. It didn't happen at 25, but it happened at 30. So, you know, the timeline can be different, but the dream was actualized. Um, so when I got the invitation to go to the PhD program, and then that opened my mind to just the possibility of what is available in the world, then I got the opportunity to apply for a Fulbright grant in El Salvador. I'm like, wait a minute, these are all the things that I truly deeply wanted, and they're little by little coming to me because I'm putting myself in positions to receive them. Um, I think a lot of people expect, you know, going into a PhD program is a risk anyway especially when you don't know how you're going to sustain your livelihood um, because you do not get paid a lot of money <laughs> as a teaching assistant or as a grad student. So a lot of people won't take that risk, but it's taking the little risk and feeling your own piece about it and not listening to, oh, well, you're not going to be able to have a full-time job. You're not going to be able to support yourself. If I can tell you that I had so much support, not just academically, but financially in the PhD program, that I was actually making more money as a student than I was as a corporate employee. And I didn't know that going in, but I had to take the step forward to receive it. Um, and yeah. <laughs> no, I always, I, I always say I have embraced saying that the universe tends to unfold as it should. Yes. And that things, it, because I used to be somebody who worried a lot. Um, I have mentioned on this podcast and various other places that the first half of my life, especially when I was young, I did not have a safety net. And so if all you got is yourself to depend on, that makes you a little risk averse yes. because, and so um, I often wonder like, how did I get out of that? But one of the things I think helped was just realizing that, you know, the universe tends to unfold as it should. If this is a thing that you want to do, you're supposed to do the things will fall into place to make that happen. Yes. It is the belief in that though. Like you truly have to believe that because yes. if you have an ounce of unbelief in this universal law and this universal concept, then it won't work. Like you have to commit to the belief that this is how God works. This is how the universe works. This is how everything is meant to unfold. And I, you know, this is one of those cheesy quotes. Like you only see the step in front of you. Like the, the flashlight is only shown on the step in front of you. You're not supposed to see all of the staircase because you'll get overwhelmed. But if you just take the trust to believe, okay, this step in front of me is the right one. And knowing enough about yourself and your own peace meter, like I follow that, like nobody's business. Like if I feel peace about it, I tell my mom this all the time, you can't stop me from running towards it because I feel, I know what it feels like to have peace about something, take the step forward and realize it was exactly what I needed it to be. Um, so being in tune enough with yourself to know your discernment measurement stick like something in you has to say okay my body my mind and my soul are telling me and giving me enough peace in myself to know that this is a comforting feeling I don't know where it's gonna go but I'm so in tune with myself that I know it's okay if I go forward because I know what this means if you don't know what that feeling is I would say start there because well, no one else can really guide you that's the thing <laughs> I had a guest on probably two or three episodes ago where we talked about intuition and mm. You know, like I'm sitting here smiling because you have figured this out and tapped into this at a younger age. It took me longer, but we live in a society that encourages women to ignore that, that very thing that you're talking about. So I love hearing you say that because it just confirms what I, what I have always believed or what I have come to believe, that you, you have to be in tune with that and you have to trust that. But there's all this stuff on the outside telling us like, no, these other things is what you should use to measure. This, this is not, you, you shouldn't trust that. So I, I, I love that, I love that. I'm a complete agreement. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm going to back up to a little bit where you started, where y'all were having this conversation and you were like, okay, this is what my dream is. I also want to applaud that because it is hard to, I find it is hard for some people to dream, to think, mm. to want something that is startling different from what they already have. Cause I imagine at this point, your life wasn't necessarily lining you up 
no. for I'm going to live in Latin America for a year. But you allowed yourself the freedom to say, this is the thing I want mm-hmm. to own it and to be free enough to do that. I, I, I don't think we talk about that a whole lot. So. Oh, <laughs> so I have to give kudos to my immediate space, meaning my immediate family, my mom and my sister um, and my dad, too are very protective of dreams and the outside world is not, especially as you inch into adulthood and the further you go, you start encountering people literally who are giving up on dreams daily. So it starts kind of around, you know, you might have that group that happens right out of high school. And then after college, you have that group of people. And then after 25, you have that group of people. Once you hit 30 and especially going into forties and fifties, you are surrounded by people who have either lost dreams or just giving up hope. And definitely not creating (laughs) new ones, not giving life to new dreams. Exactly. So I did have the privilege of youth. I will say that I was, you know, 25, 26. And you are right. My, there was nowhere near in my visibility (laughs) that this would happen. I was, I had just quit a job because I was stressed out and I was working part-time at a jewelry store. I was helping someone sell shea butters on the side on the weekends. I was uh, modeling on the side, trying to make a little bit of money there. Like I had so many random little gigs just going, just trying to make up a salary. And (laughs) So no, there was no visibility of this projection of my life. All I knew was, well, this is what I want. And I really did let it go. I think that's another one of those universal laws. Want what you want, but release it. Like you have to have the trust that if it comes, it's supposed to be there. And if it doesn't, then that's okay too. And I honestly didn't even really commit to it happening. I just knew that I wanted it. And I have a lot and, of- And, I I, and of that's, books. let's not downplay that. Because I feel like, particularly for women, we are encouraged not to even, not to even want things. Like, Mm. you know what I'm saying? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So even if you didn't immediately like start mapping out a plan, like, like, because I, I think there's too much out there that's telling people that that's the only way you can live your dream or achieve your dream. So not even that, but the fact that, you know, you, you own that, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's huge. I think that's huge. I think, especially for women, like you're hitting on a very important point, um, just about external influence and how there's a lot of, um, there's usually a box that people say how you can achieve success and whatever success they want to turn, they want to put it in. But I honestly think that women need to remember that our internal compass was given to us for a reason. Like that right there. have to learn how to trust it. Um, just you are, we are intrinsically guided first and foremost. Um, I just don't believe that God would give us such a strong gift if he didn't want us to use it. And a lot of times we can become distracted if we allow the external to drive our path. But no, you literally, as a woman, were given a gift to drive your own path if you get in touch with what God and the universe wants for you. Like, if you can become aligned with that, you really don't need a lot of extra advice. Like, yes, you can have mentorship. Yes, you can have you, you can have all of the um, resources and tools to go to to help you get where you're going. But telling you where you're supposed to go, that's going to come from here. Yep. Yeah. No, that's why the very first part of our motto is defy convention, because I am, as a woman, am done with living the life or doing the things in such a way that society vouches for it. Like, I don't, I don't give a damn about that. Like, no, it's, it's a, I am driven now by the internal. It is a lie. And it took me so long to get to this point, which is part of the reason that I do this podcast. And I talk to women like you, because, you know, if, you know, 25-year-old Adelia had heard somebody say these things, you know, like, who knows what I could have done or what choices I would have made differently, you know? Yeah. So to back up, because I don't want to forget this, you were talking about that you've kind of always had 
a selfish na nature. And, on, and, in, and in this universe, selfish does not have negative connotations because I've talked about that on a previous podcast, that that's the stupidest thing in the world that putting oneself first is deemed as a negative thing. But what I am curious about, you say you can remember having that all the way back to you were six. Was that a struggle? Did you get grief for that? Um, well, I won't say I got grief as a child. I think the challenge was, it was me and my mom in the house for the majority of my life. And <laughs> I'm going back to a specific memory where I'm literally telling my mom, you know, very, at a very young age, I need to know the difference between my thoughts and your thoughts. Because one of my mom's biggest thing was, I'm trying to plant a seed in you. Like she, she's very much an investor um, in people. And of course, being her child, she was always trying to, well, this is, this is how you should think about life. And she was putting some wonderful things into my mind and trying to cultivate me as a child. But very early, I was like, wait a minute. I think I hadn't a thought before you told me your thought. And now I can't figure out what I was thinking and what you were thinking. And I don't know where I was going in originally. So I need the space, mama. <laughs> I need to know the difference between my thoughts and your thoughts. And of course it shocked her. It didn't shock me because I was just telling my own truth, but I've really always had that. And to be honest, I didn't get grief for it until I entered the corporate workspace. I can um, imagine. I didn't get grief for it until I started to try to build adult female relationships and friendships. Sometimes I got a little grief for that. Um, and sometimes in romantic relationships, like that could be a bit of a, a, a boundary and a struggle. Um, but I'm sticking to the truth. Like I really do need to first decide, well, what direction was I going originally? And then I could consider your direction and your new information, but it doesn't mean I have to receive it immediately just because you told it to me. Um, so that is one of those things in me that I fight very hard not to just course change because someone gave me new information. I'm already going a certain direction. So if you want to tell me, hey, the direction you're going could use a little bit of tweaking, I'm more likely to receive that versus, hey, you're going the wrong way unless I really trust where you're coming from. Like if I feel like I'm going the right way, it's kind of hard to turn me, which <laughs> I know that can be a bit of a hard-headed thing too. It's a catch-22. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I'm more satisfied with going the way that I personally feel is right and realizing I made a wrong turn because then I know that I followed my good. And yeah, so sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it honestly works more often than not. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of sticking with it. I, it doesn't surprise me that you had some, some issues entering the corporate world. Now, when you mentioned adult female relationships, that piqued my interest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's, you know, relationships as a whole are a challenge. Um, but I have encountered adult female friendships where, you know, someone will think you're going the wrong way in your life. You're making the wrong decision. And they are truly trying to guide you based off of their life history and their life perception and all of their experiences. And you just have to remember your experience is not my experience. And just because you felt a certain way going down this path doesn't mean that it's going to be a failure for me. Um, and just owning that. <laughs> and I wonder how much of how much of that in those kinds of relationships, as well as in religious, uh, not religious, uh, romantic relationships can be traced back to patriarchy. Because mm. uh, if you look at so much of what society says, how a woman is supposed to be and what she's supposed to do, it is embedded Yes. In patriarchy. So a woman such as yourself, who is very firm in her belief in herself and listening to herself and putting herself forth, that don't sit right with a whole lot of folks. It sure don't. <laughs> so, you know, so I can see that and that I don't want to use the word persevere because that that's not the connotation I'm going for, but that that didn't like dim the light in you. That's well, it tried. It tried. Be, I'm, I'm sure yeah. it did. Listen, I, I'm completely human and my feelings get hurt just like everyone else. And I go through periods of confusion and darkness and, you know, questioning myself and questioning my decisions, just like everybody else in the world. So even though I could be on a path, I'm like, yes, this is where I'm going. There's always those lessons in life that come to try to test your commitment to it. And that's how I see it. I see it as a test of commitment to where I'm going. 
And oh my gosh, I was in therapy for a year about a, a life, big life question for me. Cause I was like, did I make the right decision? I don't know. Like, was this person right? Was I wrong? Like, oh my God, it was awful. And I had to learn one, it's just a test of my commitment to my decision. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly normal. It did dim light my light a little bit. I was very discouraged for a while, but I, one thing that I, I don't know if I can say this and not come across a certain way, but one thing that I really do love about myself is I refuse not to bounce back a lot of times. So it's like, you know what? We're going to sit here and we're going to wallow. We're going to be sad for a while, but there's something in me that's like, ah, 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 <laughs> you've, you've had enough. It's time to keep going. And I'm grateful for that piece of me. And I hope it never goes away because I rely on it to come back whenever I'm in a low space. Like I have enough belief in myself that that piece of Sydney is going to re will resurface at some point and we'll be okay. Now you mentioned, cause I, <laughs> I dropped the ball and did not do a proper introduction, you know, PhD candidate, Fulbright recipient, yada, yada, yeah. yada, uh, author, like I dropped the ball y'all, sorry. Um, but you've got like all of these things that you've done and you've achieved, you've got um, varied interests. Uh, you are, I saw that you were learning to swim as an adult, you know, like you're doing all these things. Um, I can't help but wonder is, and I think we may have answered this question a little bit, but like, was this part of the plan? Is this where you intended to be? As in a PhD candidate on a Fulbright scholar? No, that wasn't on the list. <laughs> um, I think it's a part of a plan that's bigger than me that I'm just kind of walking into. And all of it makes sense because everything that I'm doing now, I'm like, oh, I've been developing that skill set for a long time and I didn't even realize what it was for. Oh, I've always had this type of aptitude for Spanish or for different experiences and living abroad. You know, I've had some test features in my life over the course of my life that have kind of prepared me for this one moment. And this moment is still shifting too. We're going into a new season because I'm about to graduate in six months, Lord say the same. Um, but no, exactly was this the plan? Absolutely not. I was working retail uh, management for three to four years. And again, I had multiple part-time jobs and side hustles. And then I went into corporate again for two years and digital analytics. And I was really just kind of figuring out, figuring it out day by day. But everything that I've done, and I'm so grateful, like I said, I just kind of listened to where I felt the peace path was taking me. I just kept walking. <laughs> and eventually I ended up here and I'm like, oh, that's why I was there for two years. And oh, that's why that made sense. So I have a lot of faith in just going one step at a time. <laughs> and, and that's, I, I want to make a point about that because there is so much that we are told about how you need to have a five-year plan and you need to, you know, as you're making these choices about like what to go to school for, whether or not to go to school, what job, like it, you need to always be thinking and plotting and planning. And I think that then puts some undue pressure on folks and it makes making those choices feel like it's life or death. But like you mm. said, in particular, like these were skills, these were interests, that you had been developing and honing kind of all along. And then they culminate in this thing. So it's like you follow, you follow what you feel and you'll end up where you're supposed to be. Yes, yes. And I don't want to discount that because I know there is a, a community that really is that that preaches. Your feelings don't matter. Don't focus on what you feel. You got to, you know, grind through your feelings. <laughs> and I'm like, no, women don't, you know, I'm not saying we're not even painting women with a broad stroke, but I'm saying if you can relate to this message, if you feel like your feelings truly have guided you in your best space, then that message is not for you. It's not a singular unanimous way to do any of this. But if you can relate to, you know what, my feelings really do kind of tell me yes or no, and one foot in front of the other, stand still or step back or whatever, make a turn own that and just even respect it more so like respect that this is a guiding tool inside of you um yeah I believe it yeah um here on this podcast we tend to reject grind culture but okay. if you're somebody <laughs> yeah like we're, we're not about that life around here uh but if if the hustle and the grind like you feel invigorated by that I am not the one that's to tell you. you. Yeah, that's for you. I know 
I don't feel that way about it. Yeah. So it was not the life for me. Not at all. all right. I think I still have a little bit of it in me because um, I just turned 30. So I've still- Well, I've you're getting a PhD. You, you've got to yes. have some kind of grind in you to do that. <laughs> I am like side hustle Betty to my friend group. Like I'm always doing something just because I, I enjoy- being able to buy the things that I want to buy, especially food. Like that's just really is. I want to be able to afford to eat steak when I want to eat it. And I want to be able to travel when I want to feel like it. But I also am learning to respect, you know what? I could plan all that I want and I could earn all that I want, but I respect rest. I respect laying down. I respect letting the things come to you as well. Because there's only so much you physically can truly do. Like your body got limits. Your mind has limits. Like everything in you is not at a maximum capacity except for your imagination. Like that's the only thing that's limit, limitless. But also just accepting and recognizing that God wants to give to you. God wants to serve you. The universe is literally here to help you. Just let some stuff come. I like what you said about respecting rest because I feel very much in, in most of hustle culture, rest is disrespected. It is demeaned and you know, I, that I think has had some really not so great consequences for folks because of that. Your body deteriorates, your mind, all of your family, <laughs> like nobody wins. No, <laughs> you're right. Win. Nobody wins there. So let's, let's talk about uh, the PhD, the doctorate and the topic that you're studying, because this is of the rest of y'all may not get excited about this, but this is of particular, these areas are, are of particular interest to me. Absolutely. So I'm getting a PhD and my major department is called textile and apparel management. And if you're an undergrad, that's your fashion merchandising students, your design students, things of that nature. However, there is a whole other world outside of the fashion industry that's not related to buying, planning, retail, design, styling, things of that nature. Someone is actually making these clothes. There are companies and industries and whole international programs built to help clothing get from one country to another. And what I study is the connection between the international trade policies. So the free trade laws, I look at those and I compare them with gender inequality statistics, specifically for women working in the textile industry in Central America. And my dream, my goal, my long-term plan, because I do plan to, I, I kind of have one foot in um, planning and one foot in resting at the same time and just allowing things to come. But I would love to be able to take the research that I do, not just in El Salvador, but kind of take it over in all Spanish speaking countries that I can go into the factories, interviewing the women about their lived true experiences, about what it means to work in a clothing factory, if they feel like they're being treated fairly, if they feel like they're being paid fairly, what resources are available to them, compare them with the gender inequality statistics and say, well, they said that um, women have increased in pay over the past 10 years by this percent. Is this your true experience? Have you experienced any increase in pay over the past, you know, whatever? And if they're like, well, yes, or if they're like, well, no, girl, I ain't seen nothing, <laughs> then we have a contradiction in statistics here. So my goal is to compare the numerical and quantitative data, go get the qualitative interview data, see where the gaps are, and then communicate that to both academia and to policymakers to be like, hey, I think we need to change something here. I used to, in my previous life, I was a, uh, a geography teacher, in particular, uh, human geography. So, you know, um, a lot of, I taught, I basically taught a college level human geography course to 14 year olds. That is a very special challenge <laughs> in and of yeah. itself. And very much, you know, as we're learning all these different things and they get to the point where they'd be like, oh, this is just so depressing. The world is, you know, it's all coming to an end. It's blah, 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 blah. And over and over again, the information we had would come back to you improve the lives of women, you improve the lives of everyone. And yeah. so even now that I am no longer like teaching that, that formulates or that's like the underpinning of how I move through the world. Like I need to, to buy this thing. Well, who's a female that's selling it? Where is a yes. female owned business? Because I know, or, and I feel 
and I believe I know that my money going into her pocket is going to have like an amplified impact on improving folks' lives. Particularly like, you know, as I have been living outside the U.S., that's become even more so important to me. Well, I'm thinking, you know, women are communal by nature for the most part. And, you know, I want to clarify to the audience and podcast listeners, I understand that we live in a world that is completely non-binary when it comes to gender. So what I'm saying is not, um, I do not want to put anyone in a box with, in terms of man, woman, non-binary. However, I'm saying if you identify from a feminine p- space within yourself, I'll say that if you identify from a feminine space in yourself, then it's more likely than not that you are more community minded than singular minded. And just piggybacking off of what you said, yes, if you help a woman owned business who is someone who is feminine in nature and more communally minded, that money is going to help more people than just her. That's just how it works. So I completely respect that. And I agree. And yes, if you help women, you're helping more than just that woman. You're helping the whole community. Now, so that's what you chose to, because you mentioned that you had worked in retail. Uh, Now, is this the area that your uh, undergrad degree is in as well? Yes. So I did get my undergrad degree in textile apparel management, actually from the same university. And then, but I got my master's degree in public leadership and um, organizational management. So learning how local governments work with budgeting and also learning how nonprofits do community needs assessments to help communities. So I kind of feel like I blended my master's degree with my undergrad degree to come up with a PhD. So I love fashion. I love clothes. I love style. Like all of that's really fun. However, I also love being able to help people and serving the community and making a true impact that's going to be long lasting to serve a, a, serve a group of people and make their lives better. So I blended my two degrees together. Hey, from what I'm hearing, that's exactly you married the two very, very well. Now, um, were you spending time in Central America before you got the Fulbright? I had, yes. So I've been very fortunate. Um, the very first time I went to Central America was Costa Rica. Um, I was 17 and it was a high school trip, but it opened my eyes to the world. That was my first time out of the country. And I'm like, oh my God, like, honestly, the, the best experience that I will never forget there was learning that there were Black people everywhere. Um, I did not have a understanding that people who looked like me were not American, African-American. All My whole association with Black people was African-American. But really quickly, I got lost in Costa Rica, somehow I ended up by myself and one other girlfriend. I didn't speak Spanish very well at that time, so it was a struggle. And I saw this woman, beautiful, dark brown skin and locks. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a black person. Let me go like talk English and see if she can help me. And immediately she was como, como? no tiene nada. And I'm like, what? <laughs> You're the only black person I've ever seen that doesn't speak English like help me. But that moment was one of those brain bursts, like, wait a minute, there's black people all over the world and they don't speak English and they're not American. So anywho, um, after that, I was fr- privileged enough to go to Peru and stay there for six weeks over the summer. And I lived with a host family and took Spanish classes there in undergrad. And then after that, I was in El Salvador for 10 days. And this is what kind of opened my mind to the textile industry. We were on a study abroad tour and we were inside of a t-shirt printing factory, the class. We were in there no more than 20 minutes. Like we hadn't been there for a long time. And one of our, my cohort members, my colleagues, a student actually passed out and like (laughs) bumped her head on one of the machines. I'm watching this happen. And we're also surrounded by other women who have been there working all, who had been in there working all day. Some of these women are pregnant. Like I'm thinking, we ain't been in here but a hot second. And this young girl has passed out, (laughs) like clean out. But there are women here working in these conditions every single day to make make a t-shirt that I'm going to buy for seven dollars and they're making know, it for for <laughs> a minuscule amount of money absolutely absurd so that was what kind of sparked like wait a minute something is really wrong here um and after that most many years passed because i went into retail i moved to alabama for a while like i was doing a lot when i got invited back to the phd program i had the exact same um teacher who was now my dissertation advisor that i had 10 years before in undergrad And she had um, conferences that she was planning in El Salvador and invited me to come speak with her. So I was able to go back to the same places and the same countries and the same environment 
and speak about international trade and speak about the textile industry from a larger perspective at, at a larger level. Um, so yes, I was able to go back. And then after I went to the conference twice, I actually did some interviews there at a different factory. And when the opportunity for the Fulbright came up, I'm like, well, we're going back to El Salvador because this is where my connections are. We already know people who work for the government there. We already have a connection with factories and universities. Let's just marry our ties. Okay, because I was curious about that because <laughs> El Salvador is not on a lot of people's radars. Um, right. I lived in Honduras for a year and my own child, when I told her, hey, your sister and I are moving to Honduras, she said, you mean Mexico? <laughs> now, as a geography oh teacher, this is breaking my heart. And I was like, no, Honduras. And she was like, yeah, you mean Mexico. So, and you know, um, I think I was just talking to somebody about this the other day about like trying to plan a move there when it's a country that tends to have far much more out migration. It is not a real like tourist destination for people in the US trying to get information. It was, it was just a much different move than some of the others I have had. And I, you know, I think Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala kind of fall in that same category. Guatemala, I, I would say, has fared a little better. But um, so I was curious. I was like, that's an interesting choice that she chose, I wondered if it was a choice to do your Fulbright there, or if that was part of, like Fulbright said, this is where the program's going to be, or if that was your choice. Yeah, I got the pick. And I do believe that my, pre my prior experiences there really did add to my application. Like, hey, she already knows people, she won't be alone. She's comfortable with the area. She's been here five times at this point, she'll be okay. Um, I will say if you're applying for a Fulbright, one of the questions they do ask you is how safe would you feel living in this country um, and finding your own social networks? And like, do you feel comfortable finding your own friend groups and church groups and communities? Because you really kind of are by yourself on a Fulbright. You know, it's up to you to build that community. And being in a country like El Salvador that has a unjust re reputation for danger. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm sure it's bad, but I didn't have that personal experience. Um, they really do ask a lot of questions. So like, do you know not to go out by yourself at night? Like, are you okay making friends by yourself? Things of that nature. And because I'd already been there, I think that added to my application. Um, let's talk about uh, Fulbright because um, I, I know about this much about it because they have a component for uh, K-12 teachers, but I don't know anything about the part for uh, higher ed. So what can you... Can you explain to us what a Fulbright is? Absolutely. So there are lots of different types of Fulbrights. There's this creative Fulbright. So if you're an artist, there's an application for that. Um, there is a research-based Fulbright, which is what I had. If you're conducting independent research, then you can apply to go to a country between six and 10 months, I believe, and conduct your research there. There is a teaching-based Fulbright. So if you want to teach in another country, you can apply for that. I believe the only, well, one of the key requirements for eligibility is you have to have a bachelor's degree. And then there's tons of other requirements after that, but that's kind of one of the top ones. You are able to apply for a Fulbright once you have completed your bachelor's degree or in the last year of completing your bachelor's degree. So if you're interested in a research Fulbright, you have to present your very own research project. So Fulbright doesn't give you any guidelines to say, well, they ask you, what do you want to do? And then they ask you to prove why you believe that you can achieve what you want to do in six to 10 months. And you, you don't have to be in a PhD program. Many students are. Um, there were three of us who were in El Salvador at the time during my Fulbright term. Two were PhD students, myself and another young lady. And then the other young lady, she had just graduated from undergrad and was doing an independent research study as well. So you come up with your own project. You have to tell Fulbright, these are the locations that I've researched that I believe that can help me. So you kind of really have to do your own, design your own research plan and say, and this is why I believe with the, the funding from Fulbright, I will be able to create change in the world. But also, and this is a big thing with Fulbright too, it's all about how can the change that you want to create in the world not only help the country that you're going to, but also help the United States as well. So there has to be a mutual benefit in your application. And 
I believe that because my research was international trade-based and talking about free trade policies, all of that is meant to help build economic de development between both countries at the same time. So that was kind of my end to say, hey, this isn't just gonna help El Salvador, this is gonna help the United States as well because if we can make it better here, it's gonna be lower overhead, we're gonna have better outcome and better you know, bottom line figures here as well in the United States. So that's one thing that Fulbright really cares about, that mutual benefit. Um, they wanna know that your research proposal is truly achievable. So a lot of times people get in trouble with full, not in trouble, but you could have a Fulbright idea or proposal for research that's so grand that it truly can't just be achieved in 10 months. Knowing how to scale down your project to say within 10 months, I can accomplish this. But also if I have the opportunity in a five-year plan, I would love to achieve this in the future. That's how you can kind of build your application. Now, why did you apply for one? A Fulbright. Well, my advisor encouraged me. So my dissertation advisor is actually also another Fulbright grantee. Um, she was able to go to, I want to say China, um, but I will correct myself in the future if I'm not right about that. But she was a Fulbright recipient. And because we had been going back to El Salvador the previous year so many times already, and because there was a period in my PhD research where it would really was perfect for me to spend a considerable amount of time in the country to build those resources to get to know people. She's like, this would be perfect because you could go down there, you could do your interviews unrushed, you could get to know people in the community, you could meet the people at the embassy in a time frame that doesn't make it feel so fast that you didn't accomplish anything of value. And so, you could have the money to do it. <laughs> and have the funding, external funding, right. They didn't have to, <laughs> have to find funding from the university. They were able to pay me to do my research. So it really did just work out perfectly. Um, and it came at the perfect time of my dissertation phase. Like I had just finished my comprehensive exams and that's when you start writing your dissertation. It was, it just literally the timing all aligned itself to work out. Universe tends to unfold as it should. Yes. <laughs> okay. So how long were you in El Salvador as part of your Fulbright? I picked the 10 month plan. So I, the longest I was there was 10 months from February to December 1st of 2021. Um, as we have already discussed, El Salvador is not on a lot of people's radars. And those who, when they do hear the name, they immediately associate it with negative things. So yes. what should we know about El Salvador? That is a very welcoming country. Um, a very welcoming country, especially if you are there. Well, tourism is not as big as it should be, but tourists are very much welcome. I felt completely safe. Um, I was at a university campus there, but anything I needed, the people were almost rushing to make sure that I had the help that I needed. And I'm not sure if it was because I was a Fulbright recipient, but even just touring for vacation purposes. So going to the beach or going to the attractions in town, I felt completely safe there. Um, it does help to speak Spanish because it's not a very, English is not a very heavily populated language in El Salvador, especially if you're around people who don't necessarily have access to education as we do in America. It's not a um, reflection of lack of intelligence. It's truly is a reflection of lack of opportunity. And that's all there is to it. They need more opportunity. So I felt wonderful. Um, I do wish- Well, you look like you were having the time of your life. Um, I am going to post uh, links to your IG, uh, but yeah, you look like you were having a ball. Well, it takes an open mind. And I say that, I'm telling that to anybody who wants, who even has an inkling to travel to a different country. You have to be able to see the fun. Like go there and know that there's fun to be had and actually seek it out. It's very easy to go somewhere and lock yourself in your room and go, well, I don't know where anything is and I don't know anybody. And how am I supposed to do this? I don't even speak the language. Like, no, make a list about, okay, what do I want to do with my life? Back to the list of what do I want? <laughs> yeah. Make, figure out what it is that you want and then find out where it exists. So I took swimming lessons because like, you know what? I don't know how to swim. <laughs> I should probably figure that out. So I found a swimming teacher. Um, I was taking belly dancing classes the whole time I was there just because it was available. Um, I made an El Salvador bucket list. Okay, what are all the places that I could Instagram, Google, research people who have already been here? What did they do that was fun? 
let me put that on my list of things that I wanted to do. It's there if you have a mind to see it. You have to train your brain to see not only opportunities, but see fun. Like it exists. Um, I'm trying to think what else I wanted to ask. Um, you had mentioned like the, the reputation for safety. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think, was it El Salvador or Nicaragua? I feel like it was El Salvador that there is a concerted effort to um, sort of encourage more tourism. And because I think if people, if anything rings a bell, it's like, oh, that's that's kind of a dangerous country. Didn't they have a war, you know? And recent war. <laughs> yeah, because what was that like 88? No, okay. 92 is when it ended, but the effects of it really didn't start wearing off until the early 2000s. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> so, um, oh, I know what I was going to ask. I would be remiss if I did not ask about your experience there as a Black woman. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because, I mean... <laughs> If, if there's somebody listening to this who is not a Black woman, you might wonder why we ask that. But how we have to move through the world, this is an important thing for us to know. Because, <laughs> <Yes>. you know, <clears throat> our experience is not the same as everybody else's. And so that's why I need to ask that question. That is a very important question. And I completely agree that it's necessary because my experience in El Salvador as a black woman was completely different by my experience in, El in Peru as a black woman and in Costa Rica. So there is a difference. Um, I'll, maybe I can compartmentalize it. I think that one thing that a lot of black women worry about is fetishization when you are in another country. I, I feel like in El Salvador, there was more of a questioning admiration. So when you are the new shiny thing and you don't look like anyone else, obviously you're going to get a lot of attention and attraction, but I didn't feel threatened more. So I felt a lot of curiosity about who I am and what I do and why do I look the way that I look and why am I speaking Spanish? You know, there's a, there's a lot of questions going on in people's heads. So in terms of how I was approached by the opposite sex, I definitely did get a lot of questions. I got a lot of interest. I got a lot of looks. I was wearing head wraps. So I, I really didn't look oh. different. Like, oh yeah, drawing <laughs> attention to yourself. Totally. Yes. But I was, you know, I'm being me. Like I'm not here to, <laughs> to pretend. I'm really going to bring my whole self to wherever I'm at. But I did not feel threatened or afraid, but I did get attention. So it depends on your perception. Um, I also kind of know how to conduct myself to ward off attention if I don't really want it. So if I feel like it's negative, I can conduct myself in a way to make you uncomfortable too, make you want to get away from me. But for, for the most part, I felt very comfortable, but there was a degree of interest just because I'm different. Um, in terms of my professional and academic spaces there, I didn't feel any different than anyone else. They were more concerned about be, being American versus Black. Um, there is a separation there. So they see you primarily as American and secondary is your race and your skin color. So because I was American and because I was in a, a graduate program, most of the questions towards me were about American life and education and things of that nature, not necessarily what it means to be black in Latin America. Um, I also think that Latin America, although there is separation by colorism, it's primarily by social status first. Oh, absolutely. That's totally what I have found. <laughs> Yes. It doesn't, so, your skin color is important, but what's more important is how much money you got. Yes. <laughs> and level of education, like all of those things are hierarchical and they come at the top <laughs> and your, your skin color is kind of at the bottom. Um, also, you know, I, I, <laughs> I know that in America, I would technically be considered light skin, but they're being so close to the equator and the sun, my color was changing all the time. Um, so when I first came in, you know, there was a perception of Tueres Mulata, and I'm like, no, you know, I'm black, but the longer I was there, it was like, no, Tueres Morena. I'm like, okay, whatever. It doesn't matter what you call me. <laughs> um, but there is, it's almost not offensive there. Like it's almost in a understood, understood relationship that someone might identify you by your color and it's not meant to be a negative connotation. 
So yeah. you kind of got to get over that as an American. Like if someone calls you by your skin color here in America, you're like, what are you talking about? But there is just kind of like, oh no, mi moranita. You're like, okay, whatever, that's fine. No, but that, <laughs> that speaks to part of the reason I needed to ask the question because as a black American woman in the United States, you exist in two spaces and you navigate mm-hmm. those two spaces being black, being in, uh, an American. And then there, you're again navigating those two spaces, but you're having to be conscious of what this means in the U.S. That's that's coming from a different place. It's you know, so it's 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 not simple being us, y'all. It just is not. <laughs> it really isn't. Yeah. So so no, and like you, it. I I want to make this point because, I, and I'm glad you mentioned it that we have to be careful when we go other places that we're not bringing our black American experience and letting that dictate everything, you know, because like here, one of my good friends is from Jamaica and we've over the last year, we've had lots of conversations uh, about, she's like, I just didn't understand that it's, it was very different for y'all. Like how we grew up in Jamaica and how y'all grew up in the U.S. It's like a very different experience and things we might feel a certain kind of way about might get offended. She's kind of like, what's the big deal? And then I have to explain, well, there's this level of baggage that goes with that and there's this and there's this. And so we do have to be careful not to bring that with us to these new environments and just kind of evaluate them on their own merits, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think you've, you've said exactly what I'm thinking. Um, I had to accept that everyone does not have a relationship with the Black American experience or Black American history. And like you said, all the baggage that sometimes we can innately feel because of past traumas that have happened to our, our ancestors in this country. When I realized that El Salvador didn't have a strong relationship with the transatlantic slave trade, like they just, it passed through and it went away and like it just, it didn't really stick like it did in Brazil or in other countries, in Colombia, countries like that. So I can't be upset that they don't have a relationship with this experience if they just didn't have it. Like (laughs) there's not a lot of people who look like me in El Salvador, period. So why would they have this intrinsic anger and guilt and confusion if they've really just never experienced it. Like that's my story, not their story. Yes. You can't project. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's that's something we we have to be <clears throat> mindful or we should be mindful of. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think what else. Thank you for having me. I didn't even get to say that. Like this is so oh. much fun just Well, no, like I said, I <laughs> I I want to show other women who are, like I said, living life on their own terms that, because I don't, I, I am curious, have you gotten the comments like, girl, you're not going to find a husband out there doing X, Y, and Z. And you know what I'm saying? Because that's what society, that's what tradition says should be your focus. That's where you should be spending mm. these 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 early years of your life pursuing those things. And you are out there living your best life, pursuing the things that you want to pursue. So I want to, what's the word I'm looking for? Not highlight, exalt maybe? I don't know. But I want to shine a light on women doing the thing that they want to do. You know, fuck what, what, what society says. <laughs> Girl, you know, I want to answer that because that is a very, very critical question. I will say that no one has said that to my face. I will say that the internet is very loud. Um, The internet is a loud space. Social media is a loud space. And if you're not careful, you could start internalizing concepts that were never true to you just because it feels like the entire world is talking about it. So personally, did I feel like I am running out of time or I'm not going to find a man? Like you read all those blogs and you read, you know, it's there. It's, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes of the amount of literature and videos out there that preach this rhetoric. However, if I had never seen that, I would have never felt it. <laughs> and I had to recognize that. I'm like, I was perfectly fine before I read this blog. Like <laughs> I was living my life and trusting my path and believing all of those things. And then the moment I consumed this media, all of a sudden I'm second questioning, I'm second guessing myself. 
So if I could say anything, if it's not in your immediate friend group, or if it's not coming from your family, you are already blessed because you are in a space where you can control what you consume. Now, if it's coming from your mom or your sisters or your aunts, whoever, like, girl, you ain't gonna, you know, no man don't want no educated woman. Like, you know, no man ain't gonna want no woman that's making more than him, yada, yada, yada. Well, that man just ain't gonna want me because that's where I am. So, <laughs> like, it's less about if he wants me and more if I want you at this point. That part right <laughs> there. That part right there. <laughs> that's ourselves. And honestly, being okay with both outcomes, I had, I was telling this to my mom too, that of course the dream is still that, well, one day sitting, you know, you'll get married and you'll have kids. I'm like, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. And yes, I have the desire. I have owned the desire. I do want those things. I do want a husband. I do want a family. I do want children. If it comes, I am here to receive it. If it doesn't, girl, I'm equally just as okay. <laughs> like it's, that's where I am with it. Well, I think... <clears throat> Cause I'm also about not having regrets and I'm just, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking if you put all of your focus into trying to find a man and have babies and all of like, that's what you dedicated all of your time to. And it still didn't work out. How sad would it be that you missed out on all of these other opportunities? You know, the beauty of life, the juiciness of life. Like you don't want to miss out on the juiciness of life. Um, but you can even reverse that. Like there are some people who say, well, what if you spend all your time focusing on all these goals and all these dreams? And then next thing you know, you can't have kids. I'm like, well, first of all, life brings balance. And um, I, you keep saying this one quote and I want to quote it back to you because it's something very similar to something that I read yesterday. You said the universe- um, Tends to unfold say? as it should. It unfolds as it should. In the New Earth book by Eckhart Tolle, he says that the universe gives you every experience that you need to have evolve to your highest level of consciousness. I so love that. If you just follow the path, the lessons will come and opportunities will come. You don't, you can't really have that unbelief in you. Well, if I give this up, I'm not going to have this. No, you might be able to have them both, maybe just not at the same time, but be open to both and being open to shifting. In this season of your life, yes, you might be completely focused on your goals, your objectives, your dreams, things of that nature. In another season of life, it might be your seasons of focus on family. It's perfectly fine to shift and pivot when necessary. I think that's that. That's it right there. What is the next, because somebody's going to ask, what is the name of that book? Yeah, girl, it's called The New Earth, but I'm going to tell you one better. It's, they're both by Eckhart Tolle, and I'll tell you three books. Eckhart Tolle, The New Earth, but personally, I prefer The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. It's kind of my second Bible, so forgive me, religious community, if y'all feel offended by that, but it is for me. Um, I listen to it on repeat, I don't know how many times throughout the month, because there's so many truths about being present and being in the moment. And how that truly is your direct connection to God and how you can move throughout your life without fear. Like God is in the now. God wasn't there yesterday. He's not, he's not in the future. God is with you always right here in this moment. The universe is here to serve you in the moment. You have to be quick to pay attention to the signals and be aware enough to know that was God's signal to move. That was the universe signal to move. I'm going to follow my feet that way. So the power of now and the new earth by Eckhart Tolle, but primarily power of now. And then this one is a cheesy one because I'm pretty sure everyone's already read it at this point, but The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, you know, he has that very similar quote too. The universe conspires to give you, what is it? The moment you decide what you want, the universe conspires to help you achieve it. Something very similar along those lines. And I wholeheartedly believe that, wholeheartedly. Now I have, I will admit during the pandemic, I have not been reading anything like other than just for pure enjoyment, but you are the second guest that I have had that has gone on and on about Eckhart Tolle books. Yes. So I am going to have to add those to my list. I'm yeah. telling you the power of now for me is better than a new earth because it's more personal. The new earth is very, this is how the world works in terms of universal law. The power of now is like, and this is how it applies directly to your life. So you might want to pay attention. <laughs> so, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming and sharing your life and your experiences with us. Um, this is the part where I ask if people want to connect, they want to follow your journey. Uh, what is the best avenue for them to do that? Yes. 
So I am on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at C Sid Strut. That's S-E-E-C-Y-D-S-T-R-U-T. C Sid Strut, kind of like C Spot Run. Um, I am also on Facebook under Sid Robertson, C-Y-D Robertson with a T. And I have posts on my um, Facebook page on a page called Sid in El Salvador. So if you want to see more about my El Salvador experience, Sid in El Salvador, you can find me on Facebook. And if you would like to connect with me via email, it's Sid at SidRobertson.com. So C-Y-D at C-Y-D Robertson.com. So what did you think about today's episode? Let me know in the comments. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can leave me a comment there. If you would rather leave me a voice note, there is a link in the description uh, where you can leave me a voice note or you can reach out through social media, send me a DM. Uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on IG. Uh, is there a topic that you want to hear me talk about here on the podcast? If so, feel free to let me know that. As always, I want to take a moment to thank everybody for their continued support. It means so much to me, the, uh, the reception that the work that we're doing with the podcast and the YouTube channel and all of that, how well that is being received. Um, if you want to help support the podcast, please leave a review on whatever podcatcher you are listening to this on. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. If you got a little extra money and you would like to contribute financially, you can either become a patron, and there is a link in the description for that, or you could buy me a hot chocolate. There's a link in the description for that as well. Until next time, y'all.